am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Well, welcome to Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and I have a special guest uh, here in uh, the studio the studio being my office today. Uh, this is not our usual crew. Uh, Bramson and uh, Crom are out, and Mulberry has set me up, but of course he has a meeting. So I'm here today with my colleague and friend, Adam Johnson. Adam Johnson is a member of the psychology department, and he and I both came to Bethel University at, in the exact same time. We, came, we, were, we were in the same entry class. Uh, that, was, that was eight years ago. Yeah. We're super seniors now. Maybe even beyond that. <laughs> so, um, Adam, tell us a little bit about, uh, I've brought you in here because you're a psychologist and a neuroscientist, and I want to talk to you about the election from that perspective. But why don't you tell us a little bit about um, where, um, what you do, what your research is in, what some of the classes are you teach, and, and what some of your areas of expertise are. All right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Sure. And I guess we'll start off with my background is in memory and decision making. Uh, the particular area of interest I have is how does imagination inform decision-making? Hmm. And so I'd really like to understand what is it that we imagine? How do we represent our different options? And how does the way that we represent those that set of different options influences the choices that we make? Hmm. And so I've studied this from a number of different perspectives. Uh, we've come up with standard models that are used within economics and neuroeconomics, okay. uh, looked at individual behavior, behavior at a little bit larger scale within small groups. Um, we've also looked at probabilities and uncertainties, and people really don't like probabilities and uncertainties. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. We like to consolidate them into either certainties, uh, absolute impossibilities, and coin flips. Exactly. Um, and I think we see a lot of that within this election. Oh, okay. So we'll come back to that in a minute. But um, I've done work with humans. I've done a lot of work with rats and navigation, mm -hmm. how they make spatial choices. And in that, we've actually managed to show what rat imagination is, which is <laughs> another story for another time. I don't know that we get into rat voting behavior and all of that stuff uh, today, but um, there is something that even simple neuroscience associated with rats and the way that they make decisions at mm -hmm. an individual level can tell us about the neuroscience and the brain of decision-making within uh, humans. Okay. So, that's my background as far as a neuroscientist. I also have another hat that I wear as a cognitive scientist where I've gotten into moral decision-making and moral mm. reasoning and the cognitive science that underlies that. I think we'll probably wind up cross-pollinating a little bit, talking a little bit about neuroscience, a little yes, bit please. about biology, and a little bit about psychology from that cognitive and moral perspective. Great. Well, I'm blessed to have you as a colleague, I'm, and I'm thankful that you're here to, to answer a few questions as well. There's been a couple streams of conversation in the media um, trying to reckon with what is undoubtedly an incredibly unusual election. Um, we have um, Donald Trump is, is far from the typical candidate uh, that we typically have as a mainline party uh, um, candidate for president. 
and he and Hillary Clinton, I'm not, I'm not trying to draw a false equivalence between the two, but both of them are the two most unpopular people to be major party nominees for president uh, for very different kinds of reasons. But there's been a conversation, particularly about Donald Trump, uh, trying to explain something that's happened within his voting base. The people who have expressed uh, profound support for Trump have said, I would, uh, I would support him no matter, almost, almost no matter what he said. And he joked himself during a, a primary debate that he could shoot someone uh, on Fifth Avenue and, and uh, his supporters would still support him. Do we have any kind of explanation from the psychological perspective of how someone's uh, vote choice could be so com- become so completely solidified, so completely sclerotic in that way? I think the first place that we can start is how do we acquire evidence? Mm. What are the sources that we go to? And there are lots of different ways that we can think about the influence of Facebook and social media and the Internet and the way that what used to be we'd all go read the local newspaper and maybe we'd get a national newspaper as well. And there would have to be some representation of both conservative and liberal views in those papers. Um, We've now been able to subtly use recommender systems and mm. all sorts of fragmentation to be able to find only the type of information that we really want to hear. Yeah. In psychology, we talk about this as confirmation bias. Yes. And there's a very simple way that we can get at this using simple reasoning experiments. And what might come as a surprise to many people is that this isn't just a political thing. It's trying sure. to reason from a perspective that you don't have that's hard. If we search for confirmation, it's hard work to do what we call disconfirmation, to find mm-hmm. out why it is that what we believe why is wrong. wrong. Yeah. And that's just really hard work. And most of us are strapped for time and energy <laughs> anyway. We're cognitive misers, as we say. Absolutely. And so if there's any way that we can save a little bit of cognitive effort, let's do it. And so if I have what I believe is a trusted news source, I go to it. Mm -hmm. And so what we tend to do is we tend to go to news sources that already agree with us, and we wind up really, even on the editorials, believing it as fact. And when our candidate says one thing, and it doesn't quite agree with our views, we forget about it. And when our... Quite literally, we remember it less well. Absolutely. And so we build narratives. Our memories are built in many cases in narrative form. And if something doesn't fit with a narrative, well, it just ceases to be or it Mm. transforms into something that fits our narrative better. Right. And so our memories are actually constructive. They don't remember verbatim. They're not like computers. And so in tandem, the the combination of a confirmation bias, seeking out information that already fits uh, standard narratives that we've got, and the constructive component of our memory. We don't remember the exact thing that happened. Rather, we we remember what makes sense that would have Mm. happened. Those two put us in a position where we're hugely susceptible to having wonderfully fluffy good stories about our (laughs) preferred candidate and horrible, satanic, devilish stories about our opponent. Sure, sure. And this is coupled with something. So you, in you, in psychology, you refer to this as confirmation bias. In political science, we call we talk about something called the big sort, which is there's a theory in political science that over the last several decades and maybe longer, maybe uh, since the middle of the the, the 1970s, 
that Americans have been consciously, unconsciously choosing to move into neighborhoods and to associate in public life patterns with people who tend to agree more and more with them. Uh, cut short, uh, we don't spend time in PTA meetings with people who don't see, don't uh, have the same political party as us. We don't go to churches where people have different political parties. We find places where people t- can tend to agree with us, thus reinforcing some of those same media choice patterns, which is the way we l- normally live our lives. Uh, the average Republican doesn't spend a lot of time with Democrats in the same with the average Democrat. And doesn't this even extend to some of the ways that we've sliced up what would be neighboring geographic regions in terms Absolutely. of congressional districts? Absolutely. Uh, c- uh, members of Congress would prefer to have safe reelections. And so redistricting, when it's partisan, and it's often partisan, uh, creates safe Republican districts and safe Democratic districts. And those those prophecies become self-fulfilling when people move into those districts by choice. I think there's another piece of this that taps into more of the social psychology, which is not my particular area of expertise. But there's something that we talk about in social psychology, which is called the fundamental attribution error. Yes. And the fundamental attribution error talks about the way that we make attributions. And so when we know someone and something bad happens, we tend to attribute it to their circumstances. Mm-hmm. But when we don't know someone and something bad happens, we attribute it to their character. And so these subtle changes that have occurred over the last few decades in terms of our geography, in terms of where we live, in terms of those with whom we associate, they come out so that we can blame others for having really, really poor characters Mm -hmm. and wind up making excuses for people that seem like us who may, in fact, have poor characters. So if you're a... um Democratic operative who's well familiar with Hillary Clinton and she accidentally swears during a stump speech, you might say, oh, well, she's having a bad day, slip the tongue, or maybe she's even passionate about this. Donald Trump swears during a debate speech and he's, he's an evil human being um, and vice versa on yes. the other side as well. Absolutely. So those, I think, are some of the starting points for the type of discussion. What are the ideas from psychology, from memory research, Mm -hmm. from the way that we carry information forward and we make attributions of information um, as we get to political decisions like voting. Well, on the subject of memory, I wanted to ask you something specific about political science and how we have modeled how people make voting decisions. Um, The traditional model of of voting behavior has been that a voter enters the voting booth, slides that curtain closed, and looks at the candidates um, on display for an office and then does sort of a mental tally. They sort of think, I like this thing about this candidate, this thing about this candidate, this thing about this candidate. And depending on how rational they are, maybe they're a single-issue voter. I'm only voting for the pro-choice candidate, only voting for the pro-life candidate. Or maybe they have a series of things that they've rank-ordered, and they kind of do a quick tick-off in their head and say, this person has uh, meets more of my objectives than this other person. I will vote for them. That model has been challenged in recent years, um, and by a, especially by a model that's called the online model of voting, which suggests that um, we very early on in our encounter with a candidate form some kind of an impression of them. And that impression is based on evidence. Uh, I like this policy. I don't like that policy. I like this characteristic, not that one. But then once we have developed that, the, those ideas, we basically forget all the information. But we, what we remember is our affect. We remember our, our positive feeling or our negative feeling. And then as each new piece of information comes in about a candidate, we adjust that affect, kind of like you adjust a faucet, hotter or colder. Um, I, like a little bit, I like them a little bit more than I did yesterday. I like them a little bit less than I did yesterday. And then when we get in the voting booth, we basically remember how positive or negative we feel about a candidate, and then we cast a ballot. 
do either of those models represent how we typically, how psychologists conceptualize or, cogn- or cognitive psychologists conceptualize memory? To some extent, the the second effective approach appears that it would contribute to decision-making within the voting booth, but it's, we'd call that less cognitive mm-hmm. forms of decision-making. And I guess one of the key questions that we always ask about in cognitive uh, decision making is what contribution does deliberation make Mm -hmm. and deliberation is associated with a slowing of the world if you can slow the world down (laughs) and start to evaluate evidence then you can make a deliberative decision making otherwise if you can't slow the world down at all if the world is fast-paced chaotic and coming at you from all sides there's no place for deliberation. Oh, and okay. so at that point, really what you should do if the world is so fast is whatever effect, affect or emotional vibe you're getting, use that. That's the best way to integrate information in incredibly fast ways. Hmm. And in fact, there are some researchers that make the argument that our emotions, in fact, are doing this very complex sort of computation that tells us about information that we wouldn't be able to characterize or deliberate about or integrate over really short time periods that are associated with safety. The pop science version of this is Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. Yes. Okay. So Malcolm Gladwell talks a lot about thin slicing. How do I take one snapshot of the world, one thin slice of the world, and decide what to do about it. What are the dangers? What are the concerns that I have as I'm walking down the street? Hmm. And this puts us in, in many cases, what might be viewed as our worst selves. We wind up using stereotypes. We wind up using all sorts of bad types of information that if we had a moment to stop and think about it, we'd realize this probably isn't the way to interact with the world. But given a fight-or-flight response... It actually does a pretty good job of where should I run, who should I run away from, Mm -hmm. and who should I attack if I need to attack someone. (laughs) And so that probably isn't the best way to consider the world if you're voting for a candidate. But candidates can know that and use it very effectively. And invoking fight-or-flight responses from their voters can be very powerful. Absolutely. And in many cases, it can overwhelm deliberative processes. And so one of the big things that we talk about within cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience is that we have multiple decision-making systems and we have multiple memory systems. Mm. And when we have time, we can use these much more complex memory and decision-making systems in order to make far more subtle and complex choices. But if we don't have time and if we feel overwhelmed... There's no sense in bringing those systems online. Hmm. And so I think this is a great description of a lot of what's going on in this election. There's so many issues. There's so much emotion that's getting thrown about that we wind up having people with such strong feelings that the overwhelming emotional statements wind up drowning out the subtle and sophisticated critiques. This might be viewed as... You know, when you stop and think about how you're going to invest some money that you have, if you've built up enough money that you can, you know, maybe lose it, it's not going to hurt you. 
you can wind up thinking through things and saying, this is how much risk I'm going to take on. Sure. But if that's your last $100, it's got to work. And yeah. there's a panic that goes along with it. And we see this election more so than any other election that I can remember framed in end of the world terms. Right. And so we see Hillary Clinton framed as the worst candidate ever put up by some sure facets of the media. She will, end see, uh, uh, she will take away our guns and end our democracy, according and, to the right. And we see Trump framed as the worst candidate that has ever been put up from no, either yeah. party by a populist proto-fascist. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so voting in these terms basically puts us in a position where all we really have is this sort of panicked response mm. that doesn't really allow for much sophisticated thought. Right. And if one looks at Facebook or if one looks at the media, I think one sees that there's a very clear loss of some of that sophisticated treatment of our candidates and policies that has occurred within this particular election cycle. So that leads to uh, one of the criti critiques of both candidates in the last debate was that the, can the debate was largely about substance and character and very minimally about policy. Very few actual policy prescriptions of any real substance were given by either candidate, but both candidates sort of attacked the personality or the characteristics of the character of the other candidate. And what you're suggesting, what political scientists would typically say is, well, that's because we're dealing with low-information voters. Uh, the people that, that Clinton and, and Trump are both trying to appeal to are voters that don't know much about politics and don't know much about policies in the first place. So all that they can, that what they really appeal to them on is character. What you're suggesting is in a heightened stakes game, even people who have more information at their disposal are going to find these sort of personalistic, simplistic arguments more appealing anyway because their own sense of tension or panic actually reduces their information processing capacities. Absolutely. I think that all of us have been in situations where we're just exhausted at the end of the week. Mm. And there's some particular situation or some decision that needs to get made, and we wind up snapping at someone and evaluating, well, you don't have enough character on this particular issue. Mm -hmm. And I don't really care what You don't it have is. the right look. Yeah. And so there's, you know... It's funny because you can even take this down to, so what are we going to have for dinner? Mm -hmm. And there are the sort of, well, I don't really care what we have for dinner, but why did you suggest it in that way? <laughs> and so even that sure. vibe that goes along with it, even if there's no preference, we do have a preference in the way that it's presented to us. And so I think these two candidates are actually doing a very good job of assessing the current political climate and in many ways sort of the psychological climate mm. and then capitalizing on that and the terms of the debate have really turned on how we feel as a nation and where we are in terms of information overload sure we can't handle much more so the candidates aren't giving us much more mm. well I, I am going to be sensitive to your time, but I'm also can't, I can't resist asking you to put on your other hat and ask you about moral reasoning too. So, All right. Well, <laughs> this is something that I find absolutely delightful and horrifying at the same moment. <laughs> so intellectually delightful and personally, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do about it. Um, 
The well, argument has been uh, in the popular media. Some of the work in psychology has started to make its way into popular media. And I've seen a couple different stories in the Washington Post, New York Times, that the difference between uh, um, between Republicans and Democrats doesn't exist at an ideological level. It exists almost at a moral level, that they really do see the moral reasoning of the world differently. Uh, could you characterize, are, are we getting the scholarship right here? And if not, what are, what are we missing? Well, there's been a lot of argument that conservatives tend to see the world through the lens of authority and purity mm-hmm. and loyalty, whereas liberals tend to see the world through the lens of fairness and care. And to some extent, this seems to play out. There are a lot of different topics that you can wind up breaking down um, the two sides, the political conservative and the political liberal side, in terms of differences along these two axes. Mm. However, this election seems to make everyone into what you might think of as a moral conservative. And what I mean by a moral conservative is this. Conservative in the sense of, I don't want to go away from what I have done previously. Mm. And moral in the sense... Like risk-averse. Risk-averse, massively at risk-averse, but also moving into the purity psychology. Okay. And what we wind up seeing is disgust. For things that are not pure Mm -hmm. or contaminated, our natural reaction is disgust. So if I'm walking down the road and I nearly step in a pile of dog poo... My reaction is one of disgust. Yep. That would be awful to step in, and there's something morally bad about the person who has left that There's a revulsion there, yeah. Yeah. And so we feel that sense of revulsion. We feel it it very, very deeply. And I think what's going on, particularly within this election, is we wind up having a lot of disgust reactions. Hmm. The thing that's really interesting about this from a political discourse perspective is that there's no reasoning with disgust. Oh, I see. What can you say to someone when your favorite food appears disgusting to them? Right. There's no conversation that can be had. The it's only a- thing that you can do is please try it and see if your disgust response is right. And even that, sometimes their expectations are so overwhelming that there's nothing that could possibly be done. Sure. And I think that people from both parties wind up looking at the other candidate or the candidate from the other party Mm -hmm. and having a disgust response. And so there's no way to save any level of discourse. And if the parties wanting to be able to keep their particular constituents happy can stoke those feelings of disgust, what they'll do is successfully keep a voter from necessarily going over and tasting what the other side has to offer. Sure, sure. Oh, that's fascinating. I have, I have read some of this before, and I've typically thought about this in terms of issues. So, for example, um, on the whole uh, transgender bathroom issue, which was a hot topic in the summer and probably will be at some points in the future once, we, once some of these issues work their way up at the Supreme Court, uh, conservatives who opposed transgender persons using uh, the bathroom that does not match their biological, their, their gender at birth, um, have argued that this is a purity issue. They don't use the word purity, but they basically it, it's 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 yucky. It's it's foul. It's degrading to have people who were born as women using men's restrooms and vice versa. And if nothing else, it contaminates the standard distinctions that we have traditionally made. Yeah, it's it contaminates messing with the important tradition. word there. Yeah, it's 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 breaking that traditional uh, um, um, 
gender dyna- gender dichotomy. Cons- uh, liberals would say, "Oh, but this is an issue of equality. We uh, it is we need to let a lot of people to use the bathrooms that they want to use because we need to treat everyone equally, and it's unfair to treat people unequally in this way." And so, they're, essentially, they're both arguing differently about an issue based upon moral logics. But I, I, I love this idea that perhaps we're treating candidates according to moral logics as well, that liberals find Trump repulsive and conservatives find Clinton repulsive. Um, is that what I'm, what I'm curious about as a political scientist is whether um, we amplify that under certain elections or whether this always exists across our party aisles? I think it probably has to do with what we would call cognitive load. Mm. How much information are you already carrying? How stressed are you? If you're very stressed and if you've got a ton of information that you're trying to carry with you, think like about a, like a presidential election, like a presidential election. Or if you think about just walking into a test, everybody feels a little bit like I can't possibly consider even another fact when I walk <laughs> into an exam. My brain is full. <laughs> yes. And so you wind up being much more susceptible to disgust reactions and emotional reactions when you're carrying such a huge cognitive burden. Mm -hmm. And I think that in many ways, uh, some of these issues, the differences between Republicans and Democrats in this country have become so subtle that to be able to truly understand them, one either needs to practice within the political world and political discourse so much that one can easily move between standard arguments and have them at one's disposal or one easily becomes overloaded and feels like they're in the midst of this just rushing sea and they're mm-hmm. worried about getting swept away. So at that point, they're far more susceptible to an emotional reaction. Right. This makes them far more susceptible to disgust responses because if you could just back up and see, oh, you know what? My favorite food um, is actually made from the same stuff that your favorite food is. Maybe I'll try your favorite food and I'll have some expectations and I'll be able to see the connections between them. And, well, maybe I'm willing to give it a risk. But when we're overwhelmed, we're unwilling to risk and we're far more willing to just protect ourselves by fleeing from what is disgusting. We don't want to step in that. We don't want to vote for that. Mm. With these two things in mind... um our limited information capacities, our, our, the challenge of our memories and our processing, and our moral reasoning as well. In fact, speaking, this is your chance to be a preacher. I know you're already a psychologist wearing multiple hats. But what would you suggest to voters who earnestly want to give good consideration to candidates and issues? How should they approach those things in a way that gives them the best chance of not being prisoners to their preconceptions? Well, if I knew the answer to that, I'd write a book and I could retire pretty easily. But um, I think the first, the first step is to consider the source. Confirmation mm. bias influences everything that we do. Facebook and all sorts of other news collection engines effectively are built on algorithms that say, well, if you liked this before, you should like this. Let's mm. give you more of the same. And so we actually must explicitly overcome this. For this reason, I actually have subscriptions to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. I want to make sure that I'm reading from both sides of the political divide. One center left, one center right. Yes. And so, one, because of my particular orientation, 
feels very uncomfortable and awkward. The other one feels very comfortable for me. <laughs> and so I'm aware of this and it makes me aware of this. But I also have dear friends that are land on the other side of the political aisle. And it makes me really hesitant to say that their beliefs are disgusting. Hmm. I have a hard time saying that someone who I love dearly is an idiot. Sure. I have a difficult time rejecting them. And so what that does is it says, I need to create the space. I need to understand my own emotional responses to this. And yes, that's the starting point, but I need to do some really hard work. And then the final thing that I think that is really important for us, if we do all of that hard work, it makes it so that we can see the issues more clearly. It makes it so that we can start to examine the candidates more carefully. Mm -hmm. It's actually practicing going to the voting, the voting booth. Oh. Imagining what it's like. Because so often we feel like cattle. We get rushed through. <laughs> sure. And again, what does this sort of rushing and discomfort do to us? It makes it so that our cognitive resources are devoted to, okay, where am I? What am I doing? Am I doing the right thing on all mm. of this? Filling out the form correctly. But that reduces the thought that we can give. And so if we've already made decisions about our candidates, which is a fantastic thing to do, we can just recite those decisions when right. we get into the booth. Sure, sure. But if there is any sort of reasoning, if we feel like we're under a huge amount of stress, we'll tend to vote with the candidate that just makes us feel more comfortable. If we right. want to get beyond that, actually taking a minute or two in the voting booth, doing a bit of relaxation exercise, take a deep breath. Then Interesting. Vote. Boy, that's fascinating. I, I would have never guessed that you were going to do to recommend that. Take a little extra time, folks. Um, think about what you're doing. Get settled first. Don't rush through it. Um, Adam, this has been fascinating. Uh, I, I appreciate, I want to be respectful of your time, so we're going to sign off here, but I appreciate, uh, you sharing. Um, if it's at all possible, maybe we'll have you back on a little bit later, uh, maybe even post election to talk about debrief, uh, and how, uh, how maybe, um, uh, how half of the country, which is probably going to be very unsatisfied with the president, can process that and, and um, perhaps come to some kind of acceptance and, uh, of that as well. So thank you, my friend. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, this has been Election Shock Therapy. We'll be back with our regular episode on, t on Thursday. And for now, this is Chris Moore saying, Go Royals. Go Royals. Go Royals.